0: What's up, guys? This is PC, and this is your backstage pass to the Green Room Podcast Series. What's up, guys? Hey, this is PC. You're listening to the Green Room Podcast Series. Our guest today, I am so excited, one of my favorite people on the planet, Dr. Farah Meadows, who is an educator at La Quinta Middle School down in Southern California. Farah, how are you doing today?
1: I'm doing well. Thank you for asking.
0: Yeah, I'm super excited to get to spend some time with you here on the podcast because I just love being around you. I love any time that I get to talk to you because your energy is so contagious. I
1: I feel the same.
0: (laughs) So infectious. It's so cool. So I'm excited for you to be able to share some of your story with our listeners here today. And so talk about your experience, your background. I know you've taught in high school. You're in middle school now. You've done a lot of work with Renaissance and leadership and ASB. Share your story in terms of education.
1: Well, I knew I wanted to be a teacher since I was seven years old. Uh, I just knew looking at my second grade teacher, Mrs. White, this is what I wanted to do with my life. Uh, By the time I got to high school, I knew I wanted to be an English teacher, not because I was great at English. I was actually a, a very low reader, but it was because the way the impact my teachers had on me. So I knew I wanted to be an English teacher, thought it was the greatest job in the world, started teaching in 2001 at a middle school, and then I got into student leadership. I had always been in student leadership myself Um, in middle school and high school. I was ASB president at both of my schools. And um, it wasn't until I found where I became a student leadership teacher that I realized it was the greatest job in the world. Because as a teacher um, in a regular core class, we're we're working with the students um, and we get to see their progress. When you become a student leadership teacher, you teach your kids to go out and make a difference. And I think it just took education to the next level for me. So I've been an activities director and Renaissance advisor, both middle school and high school. Um, I love secondary education. I I could teach probably any grade, but I just love those ages. And I actually just went back down to middle school this past year. Um, I know sometimes people are like, why would you do that? That's a crazy age. Nobody would wanna go back to it, but I, I find, that they are so excited about everything I throw at them. And um, I always feel like in middle school, they're almost at like that fork in the road and we can have the greatest impact on them because we get to actually put them down that, that path and lead them down the right path.
0: One of the things that you shared with me this year with you going to that middle school was that a lot of your kids were in your Renaissance class and really had no idea of what it was and what it was all about and what they were going to do. Share a little bit of that story, because I think it's so powerful, the transformation that you've had with those young men young women on your campus.
1: Well, typically, you know, when you're a leadership teacher, you get to hold your interviews in the spring and and really – pick the kids that are going to be in your leadership program. Well, that wasn't the case with me this year at La Quinta Middle School because I was at a high school prior to that. So uh, what my assistant principal, I had worked with him at, a, at another school, so he knew the type of kids that that we look for to be, again, like, a renaissance or a student council leadership class. And um, so he handpicked these kids and he said he picked the who's who of the middle school. And so 40 kids got placed in a the class. They had no idea what it was. They had never heard of Justin's renaissance before. And on the first day of school, when they got their schedules, it said Renaissance and they were thinking like Shakespeare, like, what, what is this class? So on day one, they walked in and I said, I'm your Renaissance teacher. And they were like, what's Renaissance? And so it was a very interesting situation. So I said, well, let me explain. So I started telling them what, you know, Renaissance stands for and that, you know, we it's not just about. You know, a typical rally would recognize, you know, your cheerleaders and and your sports teams and so on. And so I said, this is where we recognize kids for doing well academically. So I actually showed them footage of um, Renaissance rallies at other schools where I had worked and their eyes just lit up. And they said, wait, we're going to do this. And I said, just wait. I said, your greatest moment this school year will happen after we put on our first rally. And then you look out into the audience and you see the gift that you just gave your peers and your staff. And sure enough, so we started building towards it and they picked the theme, uh, which we based it on uh, the TV show Stranger Things. So we called it Smarter Things and Grades Don't Lie. And uh, they picked the theme, designed the shirts, they worked on choreography and wrote the script and selected roles and it kept going for a few months. And then finally it was day, the day of the rally and um, at the end of the rally, I stand in the back. I'm in the sound booth the whole time. It's their show. And At the end, the last like minute or two, I run up to the stage and, and start saying all of the thank yous. And in the middle of me doing all of my thank yous, all of the leaders just surrounded me and started hugging. And it was just a beautiful moment because I that, it was that moment that I had told them about that they realized the gift that they had given to our school. And it has never been the same. Um, you know, we have a rally on a Friday. And by that Monday, we're already evaluating that rally. By Tuesday, we're already planning the next rally. And it's funny because I see the change in the culture of our school because after that rally, the kids are already kids that aren't even in leadership are coming up to me saying, so what's the theme for the next rally? And it's it's getting leaked and kids are like freaking out. And it's just really neat because, you know, a few months prior, no one even knew what Renaissance was at the school. And now everyone's rocking their 4.0 shirts and they're, you know, holding onto those Renaissance reward cards and they're excited about what's the next theme and they're all trying to find out what it is. So you, you see the difference that we've already made. And if I, I cannot say enough great things about what Renaissance does for a school. I wish every school across the country and across the globe actually had Renaissance in their school.
0: Just that transformation. It, it's so powerful, right? And so you guys do four, Rallies, one for each quarter throughout the school year. Talk about you said everyone has a theme and there's different activities that go on. How do your kids qualify to get to come to the rally?
1: So, the way we do it, we actually have the entire school go to the rally. So, we have three grade levels sixth, seventh, and eighth grade. So, we put on three separate rallies. And um, I know some schools only have the eligible kids attend, but we decided to have everyone because I remember when I have had kids come up to me after the rallies who maybe didn't qualify for a 4.0 shirt. Every kid who earns a 4.0 gets a free shirt um, that they wear. Now that's a great thing at our school because we wear uniforms. So Monday through Thursday, they're wearing polos and on Fridays they can wear a school spirit shirt. So when our kids have the opportunity to rock those 4.0 shirts on Fridays, it's a huge deal. Well, I have had kids come up and tell me like, I didn't earn a 4.0 this quarter but I am, I'm going to do whatever it takes to earn that shirt next quarter. And you think really, like they're doing all of this for a t-shirt, but, um, it's, it's great because they get motivated by their peers. And so we recognize, we have um, just under 800 students at our school and I can't even tell you how many awards we give out. We have um, honor roll, which is you know 3.0 to 3.49. We have high honors, 3.5 to 3.99, and then our 4.0 students. We also, um, our school's motto is our Bulldog Pride and each letter of pride stands for part of our mission statement. So we actually give out pride awards where we give, like our the P is professional. So we give out the top professional award to a sixth grader, seventh grader, and eighth grader, and then moving on to R, I, D, and E. Uh, we also give high five awards. We recognized our um, English learners who reclassified. We have student of the month, we have stafflety of the month. And so it, it's, it's a wonderful experience because you see so many people getting recognized, both students and staff. Um, It's a beautiful moment to experience, you know, the energy in the room, and uh, we actually wait the way we start our rallies is the 4.0 students all wait outside and they get the VIP seats in front. And so at a certain point, once we do our welcome at the start of the rally, the 4.0 kids come in and everybody's chanting 4.0 and they're screaming for them and you just see these kids they're so excited they feel like rock stars when they're entering the rally it's a, it's a great experience
0: oh that is awesome so talk about funding for this you said your 4.0 kids get the free t-shirt and then you do some other recognition type things how do you raise the money to be able to do those types of things on your campus
1: so one of the things that we did which i think this is this comes from uh, an amazing staff and administration who supports Our program Um, for back to school night we actually do a silent auction and every department on our campus put together baskets and donated all of the items for the basket so there might be like a movie night basket and a game night with your family basket and so that was actually one of the ways that uh, we funded one of our rallies was through the support of our staff because they believe in what we're doing Um, the other thing is it's my leadership kids they are the ones who are fundraising And so they know the responsibility that they have uh, is to raise the funds for the prizes that we give out to the kids. And so it's all them giving back to the school.
0: That's so awesome. Yeah, because that's that's something that people struggle with. You know, everywhere you go is the fundraising aspect and how are we going to pay for it and all that good stuff. So that's always cool to hear different ideas and different things that people do there. You have your doctoral degree. Talk about that Correct. journey. What, what did you get your doctoral degree in and what made you want to pursue that level of education?
1: So it's interesting. Both of my parents wanted to become educators. Um, however, they both dropped out of college. Uh, my two older sisters started school, ended up dropping out, and so I thought, oh my God, I'm going to be the first one to go through and finish. Uh, fortunately, my one of my older sisters did go back after I did, and she's actually an assistant principal now out here in the Coachella Valley, and then my younger sister is also a teacher, and we actually teach at the same school. Um, my parents always had this passion for youth, uh, whether they were softball coaches, theater instructors, Uh, they were, um, my mom worked at the boys and girls, but my dad was a boy scout leader. So they were always um, very involved in our community. So I think our whole family knew we wanted to be a part of that and be in education. Um, But for me, it wasn't just enough. I I wanted more than the bachelor's degree and my teaching credentials. So I I went on and got my master's degree from Cal State San Bernardino. Um, I was actually awarded um, the outstanding graduate student award. And I, I got to deliver the speech at my graduation. And I think for me, because I was not your typical like straight A student. I was like that B student who had to work my butt off to get those A's. And I remember um, I ended up, I don't know what you would call it, a huge mistake. I don't know. Um, I became a teen mom in high school. Um, I was not the girl that anybody thought that was gonna happen to. I was freshman class president, super involved in school and got pregnant my freshman year and um, ended up having my son, John, my sophomore year. And, um, you know, a lot of the girls, I was put into a teen mother program, and they said, like, okay, well, two of the periods out of the day, you must be part of this program. And I said, but no, you don't understand. Like, I have to, at the time, it wasn't A through G requirements, it was A through F. And I said, no, I need to go and take all of these classes, or I'm not going to go to college. And Everybody was saying, well, you're not going to college. Like, you are a mom now. Like, this is your focus. And I said, but why can't I do both? And by no means am I promoting teen pregnancy because this was a very difficult journey. I'm just showing that I knew I had a goal. And, yes, I had this huge bump in the road, but nothing was going to stop me from that. And so my senior year, like at most schools, your high school counselor calls you in and um, they ask, you know, what your goals are, and they kind of evaluate, you know, your your educational progress, and um, I, he asked what my plans were after high school, and I said, I'm going to become a teacher, and he looked at me, and I will never forget his words. He said, you're not going to college, and you're not going to become a teacher, because that's going to be too hard for someone like you, and I don't know what those words meant, like what was actually behind those words, but Um, I think that's why as an educator and as a parent today, I I carefully choose my words because I heard a quote once and it says, watch the words that you say to our children because they will become their inner voice. And though his words did and they could have destroyed me or they could have been the fuel to, you know, my fire to continue to go. And I remember going home that night and telling my mom by that point I was 17, uh, which means I had wanted to be a teacher for 10 years. And um, I told my mom, I can't be a teacher. You know, my counselor said I can She said, oh, hell no. She's like, not only are you going to go to college and become a teacher, but you're going to go get more college. And one day you'll come back to that school and you'll be his boss. And thank God I had a mom at home to push me to do that. And I think of all our kids who maybe don't have that person in their life to push them. And hopefully that's why I'm in their lives, just so I can be those words that are, uh, my voice can be louder than any negative words that come their way. So once I got my bachelor's in teaching credential, I knew I wanted even more. Um, my goal was eventually to become um, a teacher in like a, um, in an education program, because I thought, well, how can I affect even more kids than just the kids in my classroom or on my campus, but maybe if I can impact future teachers. Then I can affect, you know, indirectly affect even more kids. So I went and got my uh, my master's degree, and um, I went when I was working at a school. I, I kind of got in trouble a little bit for being too vocal with some stuff with some kids that I that I thought the school was making some poor decisions, and um, I got my hand slapped and got a, a leadership program taken away from me um, for being vocal. And uh, I remember walking down the hallway one day and one of the teachers pulled me aside and she get to see, you know, my face that I was so hurt because I love working with student leadership. And she said, you know, Farrah, you always give to everyone else now that you have some extra time on your hands. What's the one thing you would do for yourself? And I said, I think I'd go back to school to get my doctorate. And she's like, what's stopping you? So that night I went home and I started researching um, various programs and. Never thought I would even go to USC University of Southern California, because it was it's a very prestigious school in in California and across the nation. And so I thought, well, let me just look into it. And I fell in love with their program because it was all about multicultural education and coming from two different cultures. I thought that was very important. So I applied and um at the start of the school year i have all my students uh write down a goal on a star and then we we put it on the ceiling we staple into the ceiling and so mine said that to to get my doctorate from usc and i remember when i i was like a kid like a senior in high school every day running to the mailbox to see if i got my letter And I did. And I remember the next day running to my class and they were cheering and they're like, you reached your star. I'm like, no, no, I just got accepted. I still have a lot to go. Um, And so I did. I mean, it was exhausting. Um, My principal worked with me where I could switch my schedule and have my prep at the end of the day so I could hop in the car, drive two hours to Los Angeles and be in class from four till ten at night. Um, and then drive home. There were times where I was exhausted, starting to fall asleep. And I remember even crying a couple nights because I was like, why am I doing this? I am so tired. And I remember watching the movie, or it was a documentary called uh, Waiting for Superman. And they talk about that sometimes there aren't the best educators. And then there are those who are truly in it to change children's lives. And I thought, okay, this is why I'm doing this. I am doing this for my students. And that was my motivation throughout all of it. And so I'll tell you, one of my proudest moments was um, my graduation day to have my parents there and my sons um, watch me walk down and earn my doctoral degree. It was. A very powerful moment and I think I proved I proved a lot of people wrong in in that moment um, and then I proved myself right
0: yes 100% that, I think that's the biggest thing is proving yourself right and it's one of those things like mm-hmm. that's a moment in time I would say a moment in time that will forever stand still it's one of those things you'll never forget that as long as you live you know um, exactly it, it's so so cool and so you said you can you come from two different cultures talk more about that yes
1: Right. So my dad is Irish American. My mom is Mexican American. And so um, growing up out in the Coachella Valley, there is a very predominant Latino population. And so, you know, I kind of go back to the movie Selena, where she's talking about being Mexican American. And sometimes you don't feel you're American enough. Sometimes you don't feel Mexican enough. And I think that's sometimes how we felt as a family, even going to family get togethers on one side or the other. There's four daughters in our family and two of us definitely look more Mexican with the dark hair, dark eyes. Eyes, and then two look more Irish with the bright red hair and light skin and freckles. And so um, people quite didn't understand, like, what was going on with their family. And so um, sometimes we felt like maybe we didn't fit in on one side or the other. But, um, you know, as I got older, I remember, I remember even being embarrassed. You know, sometimes I remember my mom sending us to school with um, – burritos and so she would wrap it in a paper towel and then foil and I remember like looking at other kids like oh they're eating their bologna sandwiches like why can't I have that you know and I guess it's just a, being a kid try to fit in but as I got older I definitely embraced uh, both of my cultures more um, ultimately being a senior in high school I was a Mecha president which is a, a club um, for um, Mexican-American students and so um, And then I think that really is what drove me to my my master's thesis was on multicultural education. And then, of course, going that route with my doctoral degree. Um, And it's an educational leadership. And the emphasis is um, education and multicultural societies. And so I just for me, I think it's so important. You know, people often say, oh, we need to be colorblind. And I, I often think like, no, that's not the case. Like, we can't be blind to these beautiful cultures that are around us. And so I am all about and I teach my students this all the time i'm all about embracing where you come from and then obviously celebrating your diversity the diversity of the people around you um and so i i just hope that uh, colleagues of mine um, like i said my students uh, people in my community i i hope that they look around and see the beauty in our differences
0: yeah for sure and you said something very powerful about colorblind and i actually made a post on that on my instagram sometime here within the last year My best friend from the time I was five years old is African-American. And so the post revolved around that quote of, well, I don't see color. And when people say that, it's a defense mechanism. You're saying that because you've done something to where you feel like you have to defend yourself as opposed to, let's just be open. Let's be real here because we all do see Mm -hmm. color and let's seek to understand instead of to defend. And so we had a a super cool conversation that I would like to go back and revisit for other people to hear. Um, Mm -hmm. we, We were talking about, and I asked you the question of what is the difference? How do I know, you know, Mexican, Hispanic, Latino, how do I know, what are the differences there and how do I know what to say to
1: someone? So I think that and, and I, I thank you for having that conversation with me. I know we were having it when we were at the CATA conference and um, I think it's important. I, what you did, it was exactly what needs to happen. You asked the question. I think so often people are afraid to have those questions because they're afraid of offending someone. Um, and you just were so willing to open up and, and ask that. And so um, not offended by any means. And so I will tell you from what I have been educated with, um, and I work at a, um, a conference in the summertime called Inland Empire Future Leaders, and it's it was created for Latino students um, because there was a need um, over 30 years ago where they saw that it was a huge dropout rate. And so working with this conference, I attended when I was an eighth grader going into ninth grade, and now I sit on the board. Um, this is where I learned a lot of my education because we felt, we obviously, we know um, that there is power in education, And so um, this a lot of the information is what I've I've learned from there and and people might, you know, differ in in their beliefs. But from what I have learned over the years um, is that some of the terms that that we have used, obviously, if somebody is Mexican, typically they're born in Mexico. A Mexican-American would be somebody who. maybe has their parents or grandparents who were born in Mexico and then they live here in the United States or they were born in Mexico and then now have become an American citizen. Um, We have the word Chicano or Chicana. And um, that would be sometimes um, some of the older people were thought that was maybe a more militant term and it was where um, young people who were getting politically active wanted a name for themselves. And so they came up with the term Chicano. Um, we have the word Latino, but that would be a lot of times people assume that that's just Mexicans, but it's not, it's anybody from a Latin speaking country. And so, um, and then we have the term Hispanic. Now, some people do not like, like some Mexicans do not like the term Hispanic, because if you know the history, um, that would mean that they are from Spain and we have some issues, you know, with wars in the past and, um, and so we, uh, a lot of times Mexican Americans do not want to be called Hispanic, but if you look at any time you're filling out like, um, any of the forms and it's asking you if you're Hispanic, that's kind of like your only option. You have to check that you're yep. either white or non-Hispanic or you're Hispanic. And so, um, I know some people think it's just means that it's Spanish speaking, but that's actually not where it came from. And so, um, I guess for me, um, you know, and then now we have the whole word Latinx. I don't know if you've heard that. So where you don't actually say Latino or Latina, where you're not giving a specific gender to it, but now it's the X and it just means that it's all encompassing. Um, And so that's a big issue too now was do we, do we use that? And now other people were like, no, we fought to make sure that that women are also in there. So if you put the X in, now it's taking away the identity of the female in there as well. So you get a lot of different perspectives. And I think that that's the key is I'm not wrong. You're not wrong. The person next to you is not wrong. It's whatever they feel comfortable identifying with. then own it. And, and, you know, and maybe as you go on in your life and you become more educated and you become more mature, maybe you change, um, the term that you use, but I think we just have to like, like I said before, be willing to ask the question, you know, what, what do you identify? And, and let me call you by that, you know, and, um, and really, that's what it comes down to, and someone just educating themselves and being comfortable with, with how they identify.
0: Yeah, and be willing to have that conversation. And something else yes. that you shared when we were talking that day, we were talking about this issue and topic and racism, and you were talking about an experience that you had, I think you were said you were in high school, of when you went to Ohio, I think on a field trip for the first time, and how you were treated there. Yes. Share that story. You know, story. growing
1: Yeah, so growing up in the Coachella Valley, um, it's Southern California, so definitely a more liberal area, and, you know, we just grew up around mostly Latino students, and, so we didn't know any different. And I remember being in Color Guard and Winter Guard where we spin flags, rifles, and sabers. And uh, we saved up our money, and we were going to go to the World Championships, WGI in Dayton, Ohio. And we were so excited, and we had worked so hard for this. And it was in the spring, and so we loaded up. We flew over there, and we were, um, we were loading up onto a bus, and somebody yelled at us. And, you know, here we are, these kids, some for some of us, it was our first time ever on a plane, and um, someone yelled, go back to Mexico, you wetbacks. And that has forever stayed with me. I was shocked because I had never heard that before. And um, it's just unfortunate because people are experiencing this all over the country uh, with, with different races. And... And it just breaks my heart because I think it just comes down to people being ignorant and afraid of what's different um, instead of taking the time. You know, I heard a quote once and it says, you can't hate someone whose story you know. And I think if we took the time to get to know, maybe if these people who shouted this at us, you know, had taken the time to realize, you know, that we were just young kids who had worked our butts off to have the opportunity to compete at these world championships, maybe they wouldn't have made the comment, you know, but it's like they saw our exterior and they jumped to a conclusion and made a very hurtful racist comment. And um, it did, it changed me forever. Um, It's always stayed with me and all these years later, but um, I think that's why I pushed so hard um, because I mean, even in my own school this year, I had a student, one leadership student to another leadership student. One of them was speaking Spanish in our student store and the other one said, uh, don't speak Spanish, this isn't Mexico. And, um it was brought to me, and I said, "Okay, so that next day in in leadership class, you know, I could have brushed it under the rug and thought, "Okay, well', moving on uh, because I think about that comment that I heard back in Dayton, Ohio, no adult ever had a conversation with us about what we heard. It just affected us, and we moved on. And uh, we had a job to do over there and compete, and no one ever had that it was a teachable moment, and we never had anyone talk to us about it. Um, and so when I heard that comment was made, That next Monday, that became our entire lesson for the leadership class is the power of our words and learning to understand each other. And it doesn't matter what our political views are. It is another human being standing in front of you and you need to respect them. And um, I hope, you know, that I mean, we're working with, you know, 10, 11, 12, 13 year olds. And um, I hope that the conversation that we had that day in my class uh, made them all better people.
0: No doubt. And that's a powerful powerful conversation that you had right there and it makes me think Mm -hmm. about this last fall I went over to France and I was speaking at the American School of Paris and the whole experience just blew my mind because every single kid over there they have 67 different nationalities represented on that campus and every single kid speaks multiple languages most of them three four five different languages and it really just opened my eyes to you know I think about it from Brooks perspective and he's in a great school system here but i think on a global scale he's behind and and so i think a lot about that like you know because predominantly here in america it's english only english only english only but it's like why like what you know what is the goal behind that what is the benefit behind that because again on a global scale i'm behind cuz i only speak one language he's going to be behind cuz right now he only speaks one language and it's like where did that perspective come from and then how can we shift that perspective to where it's okay to speak Spanish, it's okay to speak, you know, any other language that we're talking about. Um, And it's something that's accepted and, you know, smiled upon instead of frowned upon. Next question I want to ask you is, as a white male in America, what can I do to help make the situation better for people that don't look the exact same way that I do?
1: I think it's going back to like being brave enough to have those conversations to understand. Um, My son uh, is half white and he looks, you would not know, you know, that he had any Mexican in him at all because he has lighter hair and blue eyes. And, Um, And so I, as a mother, I had to have that conversation with him. For him, one, being a male, and two, looking very white, that um, I wanted to have that conversation with him so he understands his privilege. And I think that um, the, the power with, one, that he understands what that means, and then two, that he can use his power to help other people. When you see somebody being mistreated, how often do we walk away and say, wow, I'm glad it's not me? Or do we take out our phone to record instead of standing up for somebody? And I think that that's where that comes in, is really making sure that you're using that privilege and that power to help other people. And then also, um, even even within your own, you know, culture and race, to help educate others. Because I think sometimes people just don't even understand, you know, what others have had to go through. And so, you know, I go back to my, my favorite uh, all-time book, uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, you know, and how, Um, Atticus teaches his children that we have to try to learn to walk in somebody else's shoes. And I think we're so busy um, often living our own lives that we don't take that time to um, really see where somebody else is coming from. So I think that that's really important.
0: Great answer. That's a perfect answer. It, It makes me think about a story too that um, of course I love tacos. Like that's no secret. Like I get tacos everywhere that I go all <laughs> over the world. Um, but back home in Tennessee, right. we had our favorite Mexican restaurant, um, which was about 20 minutes down the road from us. And of course the waiters and waitresses, they knew who we were cause we came in there so often. And our favorite waitress was a lady. Her name was Vicky, And we didn't know her name, uh, for the first, I don't know, let's say five or six times that she waited on us. And then finally one time I said, you know, what is your name, ma'am? And so she said that her name was Vicky, and she apologized for not telling us that. But she said that she used to introduce herself, you know, when she'd come to the table and say, "Hi, I'm Vicky. I'll be waiting on you today." But that she had a guy that, when she said that, told her, "I don't care what your name is. You're just here to serve me." And oh my
1: goodness,
0: you know the I, like. I think about that so often because it just infuriates me. Because here's this lady who works her ass off. I mean like just gets after it right um and she's there around the clock you know supporting her family and doing all these things and chasing her dreams not offending not hurting anyone and for the audacity for someone to treat her as if she's less than or not even a human you know and yeah. I don't I don't know like things like like that just absolutely infuriates me and it's it's almost mind blowing to me to even fathom that there's people out there that their minds literally work like that and that they literally think like that you know
1: you know it's interesting you know every time i would get my son's report cards john and brandon's they i looked at their citizenship grade before i looked at at their academic grades um and i don't know if other people do that but that was me because yes it's important for them to get that a in math and english but more importantly from where i was coming from I cared that I was raising good human beings. And that to me is the most important thing. I can teach them the other stuff later, but I want them to their soul of who they are, uh, to their core. I want them to treat everyone the same, regardless, you know, I've heard people say, whether they're the custodian or the principal or the cafeteria lady, security teacher, paraeducator, I don't care who it is. You treat everyone the same and with respect. And, you know, that's unfortunate that somebody would would do that um i think it comes a lot though and i don't want to blame parents but we are their first teachers yep and we have to call them on it when we see that you better believe i remember being a little girl one time and um we were at the grocery store i was probably like four years old and they had those bins that had the candies and we thought they were free so we put them in our pockets and we were in the back of our station wagon my mom heard the And she said, what did you girls do? And it was me and my two older sisters. And I think we were probably four, six, and eight. And um, she made us, she marched us right back in and we had to empty our pockets and apologize to the manager and she paid for them and then we didn't get the rest of them. Um, But it was moments like that. Our parents, we, our job, is to call our kids on those things. We None of us have perfect children as much as we want to think that. Right. This is our opportunity, you know, when we, when we see those little trees, you know, where they have to have that pole tied to them to make sure that they grow straight. And that is our job. And sometimes we're so busy trying to be their friends. And I have great relationships with my sons. And that's not what I'm talking about. But like, we have to be the person that sets them on the right path to be good adults, you know? And I know like everything that's going on You know, with us having to stay at home, you know, because of the coronavirus, Um, I know in our district, um, we're not allowed to give lessons right now. And parents are panicking, like, what do we do with our kids during this one week? And, And I thought, oh, my God, what an opportunity for us to... Just get to know our kids. You know, we're so busy living life that a lot of times we don't get that opportunity. I saw somebody post about maybe this is our chance to to teach them other things besides the academics right now. And so uh, maybe we're all having to slow down a little bit so we really can build those relationships and really make sure that our kids are good people.
0: Hundred percent. And let's go further down that road with the coronavirus and this crazy time that we're going through right now what are you doing and what are your fellow educators doing in your school and in your community to stay connected with your kiddos and with your parents and families and everything along those lines?
1: So, uh, one of the things that our school district is doing, and I believe it's happening all over the state and hopefully the country, um, I know Monday through Friday our schools are giving out a free breakfast and free lunch to any students, and um, so that's amazing that they are able to do that because I know for at our school every student on our campus gets free lunch and free breakfast. So for many kids this might be their only meal, so that is such a huge relief on our part as as teachers because we want to make sure that our kids are are taking care of. You know, we talk about their basic needs have to be met first before they learn the academics. We need to make sure that they're feeling safe, that they're fed. Um, and so it's nice that our district is doing that. And I, hats off. I know one of our um, cafeteria ladies she uh, that I used to work with at a prior school, uh, she said, can you believe it? We're considered essential employees. And it kind of hurt my heart a little bit because um, how did no one ever think that they weren't essential employees and and i wrote back to her and i said i've always thought this of you um you know my parents both wanted to be teachers but ended up both working in the schools my mom was a bilingual secretary my dad was a retired police officer who became a security agent and And I used to watch them in awe and all of our classified employees, you know, I know uh, teachers get a lot of credit. The principal gets a lot of credit, but the classified employees are the backbone of our schools and we don't exist without them. And, um, you know, I'm I'm glad that someone's recognizing these hardworking individuals, you know? And so, um, one of the other ways that we are staying in contact with students is through technology. I think we, you know, people talk about, um, What if we were going through this in a different time period. I know uh, one of uh, the speakers, uh, Johan had made a post about, you know, imagine what Anne Frank and her family were going through when they were stuck, you know, for years in in the secret annex, you know? And so we are blessed with technology. So I know in in my case, um, using social media, using Google Classroom to communicate with my students has been a blessing. Um, I stole this idea from a PTO in another state and they did a virtual spirit week. So I've been posting, um, um, you know, on one day, it was where, like, Friday was wear your school colors, so I, I actually had all my different school shirts, my 4.0 shirts, my Avid Renaissance ASB shirts are all hanging behind me, and I was wearing, actually, the school uniform shirt, um, and so I think it's important to tried I, even though we're in a very abnormal time to still have some sense of normalcy. So my kids were posting their pictures um, showing that even from home on St. Patrick's Day, they were wearing their green shirt and so on. Uh, my sister this morning, like I said, she's a sixth grade teacher at my school and she teaches math. Um, she did a Zoom conference with her students and um, I actually uh, got to be there with her for that. We live just uh, down the street from um, one another. And um, and it was wonderful to hear her kids um, so concerned about their grades and getting back to school and are we still going to have a renaissance rally and what about their 4.0 shirts that they've earned and um and so it it was nice I think for them to hear and see their teacher uh because they she kind of calmed them down and was able to answer a lot of their questions and and it was great for them just to interact with one another so um, like I said I think we're blessed in a time where we have the ability to do that um, and still keep our kids connected to our our educators and to their classmates.
0: No doubt, and that's what Tara and I were talking about. You know, in the early 1900s, the last time that something of this magnitude, kind of similar, happened, like we didn't have all this technology. There were there were not cell phones and social media and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, I couldn't imagine. You know, that's a totally different world then when you know when that went down back then. You know,
1: right. We're definitely much more fortunate now.
0: Right, right. All the information that we have right at our fingertips. You do so many amazing, cool things. One of my favorite things that you do is your special needs prom. Talk about that and where you started, because I know it's grown just exponentially to where it is now.
1: So it started a few summers ago. I was at the Jostens Renaissance Conference, the national conference in Arizona, and I was sitting with my Jostens rep in the very back of the um, facility and uh, watching this gentleman by the name of uh, Dr. Phil Campbell. And he was presenting, um, and one of the many amazing things that he had done was the, the sped prom at his school. And I remember looking over to my Jostens rep, and I said, oh, it's on, like, we're doing this. And, you know, when you when you go to these amazing conferences, you, have, you are flooded with ideas. And I just had to think to myself, okay, what three things can I take away and actually implement at my school? And so that very next year, so that was like in the summer. So by that fall, I was like, okay, th- that was one of the three things on my list that we would do. And so started working with the other schools and we thought, okay, this is gonna be a district-wide. We're gonna get all of our high schools in. And I was at a high school at the time. And um, and then one by one, the, the high school started dropping out. And I just thought, oh, man, I, like we were doing it too close to the other proms. And so I think that, you know, as an activities director, you become overwhelmed when when it's prom season or graduation season. And so um, I just told my leadership kids at Indio High School, I said, okay, we're going to make this happen. If it's just us, it's just us. And maybe we need to start small this first year and then people will catch on. And so we did. It was just us that year. And it was a wonderful experience. I remember crying and my principal was there. He was crying. And, and I just said, you know, in in all my years of teaching and in all the different things that I work with, it was probably I would say is my my top five things that I have ever had the privilege and honor of helping to coordinate and put on with my student leaders. Um, and so after that first year, the other high schools were like, okay, we're we're doing this for sure. And so by the next year, uh, we actually did have um, three different school districts in our area. Um, participate and and bring kids and their leadership kids were there decorating in the morning so now you know a lot of times you have especially in a small community you have your rivalries between the different schools and that was a great part just to see the setting up of this um, wonderful event was all of the different schools coming together to put this on for our, our severely handicapped students. And then of course, once our special guests arrive, I'm in tears all over again. And um, I remember there was a mother who showed up with her son who had cerebral palsy and um, he was nonverbal. And I remember she came up to me at the end and she was in tears and she just said, thank you for what you're doing. And she was like, he will never experience a prom." without you guys doing this. And then there was another parent, he came up to me and um, his son um, is autistic. And he said, I know there was a question of, do we allow the parents to go or not? We actually invited the parents and the parents sit down at the tables and where they're having dinner. And then on the other side is where we have our dance floor. And I remember the dad came up to me and he said, I need you to understand something like how big this is. Uh, because I was dancing with his son and then one of my leadership kids was dancing with him. And he said, you don't understand what we just experienced in that moment. That was the first time he has ever danced with someone. And you guys gave that to him and you gave that to us because we were here and got to witness this. And so it was just, you know, we, we don't do this for credit. We do this because that's our job. I think is to, is to create moments. That's what we do as activities directors and leadership um, teachers is we create memories. We create those unforgettable moments and we do it alongside our amazing students and we teach them how to do that. And it was just very powerful and it all comes back to me sitting in the back of that room watching you present on it and you know, we, we talk about in the leadership world and activities that we just beg, borrow and steal ideas from one another. And I thank you for letting me steal your idea and implementing it back home.
0: But it's so cool. And I just love I love watching it and the the magnitude that you guys have taken it to with all the different schools that are involved. And like you said, those parents, when they come up and say those things to you, you know, those again, those are moments in time that you'll never forget, you know, and. Absolutely.
1: And to hear like we have, uh, you know, we right now it's postponed and uh, but we have a restaurant that said, you know, we heard about this and we wanna donate all the food. We have a photographer that comes in and does three photos. Um, Every high school or every school that participates um, donates one item, so it's not all coming from one school now like back when we had to do it originally. And so one school says, we have a floral department, we're gonna go ahead and do the boutonnieres and corsages. Another one says, we're gonna donate the drinks. And it is just wonderful to see so many different groups come together to put this on for our students.
0: Super powerful. I always say that the legends never make it. And it's can never you can never have the mentality of it's never I made it. It's always what's next. And if anybody embodies that statement, it's you. Mm-hmm. And so for Dr. Farrah Meadows, what's next?
1: Oh, goodness. Um, in my life, okay. So I've been through a lot in my life. And um, ever since I was a little girl, I don't know if this is normal, but ever since I was a little girl, I remember lying in bed at night and staring at the ceiling, thinking like, oh, I'm supposed to do something really big. Like, I'm gonna make this huge impact on this world. And I didn't know how that was going to happen. Um, but every year, and I don't know if other teachers do this, but on the last day of school, I always cry once all the kids are gone. And I sit at my desk and I lean back in my chair and I think, did I make a big enough impact this year? And I evaluate myself as, a, as not only a teacher, but as a person and think like, how can I reach more kids? So that was then, you know, not just teaching English, it was moving into an activities director spot. Then, you know, now I'm like, okay, now I'm affecting more kids. Um, but I still feel like I haven't made the, uh, the impact that I'm supposed to make still. Um, and so when I was at CATA this year, um, I kept thinking like, okay, I see all of these amazing speakers. Um, I have a story to tell. And I, I want I want to write a book. I want to write a leadership books. I want to write a, a books about, um, you know, in those moments, you know, my, my son, my older son, John passed away in um, 2016 and I am at February 16th, 2015. And, um, you know, in those moments when I don't think there's a greater loss than losing a child and, um, those moments when I'm lying on the floor of my bathroom crying and then I wipe my tears and I get back up and I'm like, okay, let's, let's take this day on because I know that I'm supposed to, whatever I'm going through, I'm supposed to use my, my pain and turn it into purpose and turn my wounds into wisdom. And, and so I take all of that and I think, okay, what can I do? How can, whatever I'm going through, how is this supposed to help someone else? And so working with other angel moms, um, trying to go through this journey with them, uh, working with my, I remember going back to work after three weeks, and there were moments where I broke down with my students and we cried together and they all knew John you know he'd show up in my class and they'd all see him or he'd help chaperone a dance when he'd come down from college and um and so they I remember breaking down a lot that year with my students and my first day back to work they actually were waiting for me at the front of the school with a sign that said welcome home and for whatever reason in all my years of teaching only that year the kids called me mom And I said, you don't know how how," I needed to hear it, I think. I needed to hear these young boys call me mom because I had now one less son that I got to hear that from. And so in those moments when I am at my worst and I am completely broken, I still wipe my tears, I still get up and I still go to work. And not only do I go to work, but I still try to impact lives. And so one of the books I want to write and and speak about is – to, I want to call it, um, don't give up, give back. Because in those moments where we feel like, man, like if we could even almost imagine it hasn't happened to you yet. And you think like, if I were to ever lose a child, like that's it for me, I'm done. But when that moment actually happens, and you don't give up, but you're actually turning that pain, and you're giving back to other people. That's what I want to teach people to do is to have that grit, have that resilience, and to keep going. And so for me, Whatever I'm going through, like I said, I'm supposed to take all of this, and I feel that my next step is to impact even more kids. I see what you do, and I think you're absolutely amazing. I, th- I think of, you know, Mike Smith and so many of these others, Keith Hawkins, um, Norm Hall, Phil Boyd, like all of these names, and I always think I could do that. I, I have a story to tell. And I've been through hell and back and I'm still walking and still making a difference. And so, um, those are my next steps. I'm terrified. I remember Oprah once made a comment and she said, um, you can't steal second with your foot still on first. And I'm comfortably on first because I not trying to sound cocky, but I love what I do and I feel like I'm darn good at it as a leadership teacher, but I'm very safe where I am. And I'm terrified to take that next step. But I know, and I remember Oprah had said to me, um she said that in order for you to make a bigger impact, you have to th- maybe think of not your classroom as the four walls of your school, but you need to think bigger and maybe you're going to have a bigger classroom. And so um, I think that's my next step. <laughs> so we'll see. Um, I've had a lot of uh, you, you amazing speakers offering to help and um, and I, I thank you for that, for your guidance, um, because. Maybe there's going to be a Dr. Farrah Meadows out there speaking soon.
0: I have no, I have absolutely no doubt that there will be. Uh, <laughs> talk about that meeting with Oprah, because you, you've you shared pieces of that with me before, but like I think that's such a cool story. Tell me how that went down.
1: So I'm a huge Oprah fan. Ever since I was a little girl in elementary school, running home to watch the Oprah show. And in 2010, um, I remember writing... I had gone onto um, the Oprah.com and it wasn't even a big thing on there. It was just a little question in the corner that said, Are you Oprah's biggest fan? Tell us why. And so I wrote in and I kind of shared my journey. And I said, You know, I was a teen mom. I was abused in high school and I couldn't tell anybody what I was going through. And I said, Even though Oprah didn't know I was on the other side of that screen, that woman taught me how to be strong and how to, at the age of 16, leave my abuser. And so, I mentioned that no longer was I just a teen mom, but I was actually a Trojan working on my doctorate. And so I shared this journey and just typed it in and said, um, you know, that was it. I turned it in and went about my life. And that summer I was at a leadership conference with students and I had a missed call on my phone. And there was a voicemail from Harpo Studios and I just about had a heart attack. And um and they said that they would call tomorrow. And so I'm like, okay, I cannot miss this call because I have no idea what it's about. And so they called me and they said I was in the running to be one of um, Oprah's ultimate viewers. And I'm like, what is that? And they said, well, it's gonna be her final season. And um, and so we're picking the people who are her biggest fans and you, we read your response and we would like to do a phone interview with you. So it ended up being about a 30 minute phone interview. And um, I remember them asking me the question, who was my favorite guest on the show? And I said, it was never about the guests. It was about how Oprah made them feel. And I said, she was like the soul whisperer where she just made everybody feel so comfortable just completely open up. And I loved that about her. And so um, that was the end of it. And then I get a call. I'm setting up my classroom and apparently I got an email but our internet was down at the school and um, it said, you must respond by this time um, if you would like to come to Chicago well, I missed the deadline because I didn't know. And so they called me late one night. It was like the week before school started. And um, they said, you didn't respond. Do you still want to come to Chicago? And I'm like, "Uh, yes, I do. And so I had to tell my principal that I was going to be gone for a few days. And um, they told me that when I got there, I could not tell anybody that I was an ultimate viewer. And I said, well, what does that even mean? And they just said, which they had lied to us because they didn't want us to know. And they said, well, when you get to Chicago, all season long, the front row will be dedicated to her ultimate viewers. You get to take pictures with her and meet her at the end of the show. I was like, sweet. I'm, I'm just wonderful. So I get there. Well, me being me, I was nosy. And so I started asking people, how did you get tickets to the show? And then so the person like looked side to side to make sure nobody was around. And they said, "Okay, I'm an ultimate viewer. And I thought, really, I found the other ultimate viewer out of all these people online. So then I went to somebody else. Excuse me, how did you get tickets to the show? And they said the same thing. And then I started going down the line. And then I realized the entire audience audience was ultimate viewers. And I'm like, okay, this is not your typical um, show. So um, it's time for us to go in. And I had been to the Oprah show one other time prior with my sister, and it was just a normal, you go in, you watch the taping, and then you leave. So this time they had cameras on all the audience members. They had lunch for us. And I'm like, okay, this is not normal. Um, And then we take our seats and – foreshadowing occurred. Uh, There was one little piece of confetti that I started, I saw fall from the ceiling. It was an orange piece of confetti. And I watched it fall. And then one of the producers came by and just picked it up. And they said, Oh, just ignore that. And they walked away. And I was like, what the heck was that about? So now the show starts, Oprah says it's um, the premiere of her final season. And then ultimately what she says is you're going to Australia and at that time confetti flies from the ceiling, the plane comes out, John Travolta is there. And, um, and if you were to ever go back and watch that, um, taping. There's this crazy gal in a yellow shirt who jumps onto the stage to hug Oprah. That would be me. Uh, <laughs> they said I was the first person in the history of the Oprah Winfrey show to rush the stage. And I said, no, people hug her all the time. And they said, no, those are guests on the show, not the audience members. So, but hey, she, I, I put my hands out to hug. her. I'm a hugger. She put her hands out. I hopped on the stage and I took the opportunity. And, um, and then that was in September. And then um, that year, In December is when we actually went uh, for the two weeks, and it was a powerful experience. I remember thinking I didn't deserve to be there, and she actually addressed that to all of us, and she said, I'm sure a lot of you are thinking you shouldn't be here. I'm like, dang it, she reads minds, too, and um, she said that she had handpicked every one of us who was selected she'd read our stories and she said everything you have ever gone through in life every success every challenge has brought you to this very moment and then she said something very powerful she said but do not let this moment be the greatest moment of your life she's like take this and keep going and I think that was so powerful because up to that I'm like yeah this is the greatest moment of my life besides uh, obviously my children um but it was like now taking that and then moving forward and, and now trying to give a gift like that to someone else. I thought that was so powerful. And then I did get one-on-one time with her and I remember telling her, I said, Oprah, like you were one of the people who has molded me into the person I am today. And I thanked her. And I said, you know, if I wasn't a teacher, I would be a talk show host. Um, and I said, you know, my classroom's kind of like my talk show where five days a week, I have an audience of students and I teach them, tri- how to be good human beings. And then she said, you know, Farrah, um, if I wasn't a talk show host, I'd be a teacher. And she's like, and my talk show is my classroom. And so it was a great moment. I actually had her sign my journal. And, um, and then the next day we had this huge brunch with everybody. And then, uh, you know, I've spent my life quoting Oprah and have her quotes in my classroom. My students all know I love her. And, um, and, and, The next day, she said, oh, I was talking to a teacher yesterday. And then she quotes me. And I'm like, oh, my God, like Oprah just quoted me. And it was just such a great moment, because she talked about for all of us that we're all teachers in our own way. And it's what we do with our gifts. And so hopefully I can continue. I'm blessed to be a teacher. I will always be a teacher. It just depends on how big I want my classroom, right? 100%.
0: That's uh, so awesome. Like what a what a super, super cool story, man. Well, Farrah, thank I, you. I can't thank you enough uh, for taking the time to be on here. I can't thank you enough for everything that you do For kids and for adults, uh, you inspire people like you inspire me, and I'm so glad that our paths crossed a few years back, and I look forward to our continued relationship, and I look forward to what's next because you're one of those people that I know the wheels are always turning, and you're always looking for something bigger and better that you can do to take yourself, but more importantly, to take other people to the next level in their lives, and I just can't say thank you enough for that.
1: Oh, thank you so much. And thank you for giving me the opportunity to have this platform to share my story. And um, it was definitely a blessing to have our, our paths crossed. And I look forward to working with you, PC.
0: Guys, you've been listening to the Green Room podcast series. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you enjoy the podcast, if you do me a huge favor, if you would rate it, subscribe to it, and then share it with a fellow educator that you think might enjoy it as well. Chase your dreams, kids.